that we're friends Here is an album you would like Here is a book you would like I think you'd like my cat and also my dog Because we're friends Now that we're friends Now that we're friends Now that we're friends Now that we're friends, that we're friends. Hello and welcome to Now That We're Friends, the podcast that takes your questions and gives you homework. <laughs> uh, just kidding. So Now That We're Friends is an arts advice podcast. So you give us questions like Dear Abby, but instead of giving you answers like Dear Abby, we give you personally curated little mixtapes of music, art, poems, TV shows, all sorts of different things to kind of help you set a mood to get through whatever it is you're going through. That was Caroline Cabrera out of Fort Lauderdale, who loves burritos and hates birds. <laughs> uh, that was Aunt Cecilia Holmes out of Washington, D.C., who once dressed up for Halloween as Carrie Strug, the Olympian gymnast. <laughs> and that's Gail Thompson out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, who once made a diorama of Switzerland in a shoebox, and it looked like boobs. It really did. <laughs> oh. All right. So let's get straight to it. I have a voice memo for us asking for some advice. Hey, guys. So uh, I'm no stranger to political debates with my family. I am very liberal and I come from a conservative Latinx family. After the 2016 election, things, as for a lot of people, I'm sure, have only gotten more hostile. I'm currently under circumstances where I have to spend a bunch of time with them, which normally isn't bad, but the politics keep slipping in. So I was wondering what you guys can recommend I do to help me get through this debacle. Good luck. <laughs> So I think that's a really great question. I think a lot of people are kind of dealing with that and feeling that way. So I'm glad we got that one. Oh, yeah. This listener didn't give us her name. So we will call her uh, Juanita. My great-great-aunt's name was Juanita. My great-grandmother's name was Juanita. That's why I chose it. Well, maybe they're maybe they're the same person. Know. That would be, that that would be weird. Be <laughs> um, very, breaking news. <laughs> I think so much of the, this question is really very similar to a lot of the stuff that kind of I deal with as a, a, a little blue dot in a red world in coming from the Southeast. Um, now my number one recommendation, recommendation is to move to Michigan um, and be on your own, but also it's snowing, so don't go. But I would say so much of this is – well, I guess first, we're all assuming that you at least love your family and that they have redeeming qualities. Like, I guess we can kind of set some parameters because I think like if they're an abusive or like if there's a whole different kind of element going on here, then a lot of our advice is going to be or at least my advice is going to be very different. I curated my little list of things based on the premise that what's hard about this situation is that familial love is this really important thing that that allows yes. you to to kind of hold like cognitive dissonance about stuff like this in in okay. ways that other okay. relationships don't necessarily because you can like there are bonds that can be broken a lot more easily and then there are ones that you're like I love yes. you so deeply and I am enraged at the way you're thinking right now and I don't know how I deal with both those things at the same time yeah and I th I mean I think it's I think it's good anyway probably to just to kind of get that in the in like making that clear just because I think like that would then I mean that that clears up I think the arc for me and makes our you know I guess it clear for the listeners as well so I was looking through poets.org which is the Academy of American Poets website and I really like this poet Donica Kelly and there was the first line of this poem that's called so the title is called I never figured how to get free and the first line is the war was all over my hands and that really uh, hit it kind of when you live with someone or when you live with a group of people where you're kind of reenacting the same kind of arguments over and over again and everything kind of has so much weight and I would say a lot of living with 
people like that is your your whole perspective gets completely skewed and kind of everything has all of this weight to it, especially with family where you're already enacting all of those things that you've been doing your whole life. And so I even in the small things, it feels like a war each time. And it feels like, you know, you can't quite let go of that sense of responsibility or that sense of everything having this really heightened weight to all of your decisions. So I'll, I, I think this is probably, I have a, actually several poems, but this is definitely one I would like to read. I never figured how to get free. The war was all over my hands. I held the war and I watched them die in high definition. I could watch anyone die, but I looked away. Still, I wore the war on my back. I put it on every morning. I walked the dogs and they too wore the war. The sky overhead was clear, or it was cloudy, or it rained, or it snowed, and I was rarely afraid of what would fall from it. I worried about what to do with my car, or how much I could send my great aunt this month and the next. I ate my hamburger, I ate my pizza, I ate a salad or lentil soup, and this too was the war. At times, I was able to forget that I was on the wrong side of the war, my money and my typing and sleeping sound at night. I never learned how to get free. I never learned how not to have anyone's blood on my own soft hands. Well, I love that poem. Thanks for reading that to us. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I guess I will follow that up also with a poem. I was thinking a lot about our girl, Adrienne Rich, and thinking about her approach to politics, approach to thinking about our times, not necessarily in, in terms of family, but this poem came to mind, which is from an atlas of the difficult world called What Kind of Times Are These? Hell yeah. Which is just a beautiful poem. Um, so it starts, there's a place between two stands of trees where the grass grows uphill and the old revolutionary road breaks off into shadows near a meeting house abandoned by the persecuted who disappeared into those shadows. And so she kind of continues through the poem saying that she's walked there on the edge of that kind of stand of trees, that edge of dread. And then she says, I won't tell you where the place is, the dark mesh of the woods meeting the unmarked strip of light, ghost-ridden crossroads, leaf mold paradise, I know already who wants to buy it, sell it, make it disappear. And then the last stanza of this poem, which is just like, kabam, it's beautiful. And I won't tell you where it is, so why do I tell you anything? Because you still listen, because in times like these, to have you listen at all, it's necessary to talk about trees. So Juanita, in thinking about this poem, there's this idea, right, that there is this crossroads, there's a meeting ground when you hold different opinions from your uh, than your family. And I love in this poem that Adrian Rich doesn't want to tell you where it is because maybe when we talk about a meeting ground, there's this like elephant in the room, right? And there is a meeting ground. And I love this way that Adrian Rich is kind of bringing us all into this conversation about politics and about the heaviness of our times, but she doesn't want to tell you exactly where this meeting ground is because what if we start fighting before we get there and what if we ruin it with, you know, our capitalism and greed. But in the meantime, while she's telling you about this place between the trees, like you're listening and, you know, aren't trees beautiful and lush and they're easy to talk about on the surface, but they're also hiding everything and they're hiding all the dread and we actually need to face these things, but we're afraid to say it out loud. But in the meantime, we're kind of talking about the thing around the thing. And I don't know, something about this poem just made me think, you know, obviously this is a political poem, but it's also this idea, right? That when we're talking about things that matter, often we're talking about the thing around the thing. And often it's hard with, family, especially when you're on sort of different ends of a, of a political spectrum or any type of spectrum, to find that meeting place. And so we end up kind of talking around things or arguing about things. And there's this sort of delicate balance that 
I don't know, I guess we just have to keep in mind and that we're still trying to find this balance and we're trying to get to a place where we can talk to each other on the same level. So I love Adrienne Rich. You know, there's a long poem that she has uh, called Contradictions Tracking Poems. And it's literally just allowing us all to live in those contradictions and to not let them blend into each other and not let them bleed into each other and like conflate into each other, but that we're allowed to live in those contradictions. And then we're allowed to kind of, and like the world is supposed to be complex and it's filled with real complex people. And, you know, if they're family and you're living with them and you love them as family, they have so many different qualities about them that aren't just this. And it can be really hard to remember that. But I think it's also, it can sometimes be hard, I think, especially for me, to remember that complexity is okay and that it's, you know, and that we can kind of hold all of these different contradictions at the same time and that we can keep working on it, but it doesn't need to be kind of resolved or there need like any sort of kind of mastery or control over it. And so many of her poems, I think just in general are, they do such a good job of like zooming in really, really small to talk about those like personal relationships, but then zooming out to also show the world, like the really messed up world that those relationships are in. And Anne, I think you said that really, really beautifully, that like complexity and contradiction that is okay, is absolutely okay. So something that I really liked about that poem and the way you read it, Anne, was like moving the focus onto the trees also just made me think about how political issues particularly can get people so charged on something. And then at least my experience with my family members who, you know, I often feel like how did we grow up in the same house or like how did I grow up in your home and come away with such different ideology? But then as soon as the focus is shift, uh, shifted away from something that's explicitly political, I find the common ground. Like an example that I was thinking of when you were talking is when I went to see Juno Diaz with my parents. He was down in Miami. My mom had read The Brief Wonders Life of Oscar Wow, and my dad didn't know anything about him, but was like, okay, I'll come too. And it was like my husband, my sister, my parents, and we all went and he was reading from his children's book, which is called Island Born, which is this beautiful children's book. And it's all about this little girl who's living in New York and their teacher asks them to write about where they're from. And she doesn't remember the island that she's from. And so she's trying to ask people to tell her about it. And like, it's just this gorgeous book. And like everyone's talking about the island so wonderfully. And then like this, like her super in her building tells her about like the monster that came to the island and, and ruined it. So there's all this allegory about like dictators in the Caribbean. And he he leaves the island unnamed. Diaz is from the DR, but like it could easily be Cuba. It could easily be like all these different places that have shared this kind of similar type of history. And obviously there's a ton of like political significance underneath that. So in the Q&A after, Juno Diaz is being like so radically liberal and like just talking about like being black and Latino and all those lines of division and all this like and and it was like I was sitting there thinking like what is my dad this Cuban American man <laughs> or you know from Cuba born in Cuba but raised here who probably identifies with some of this but also politically ideologically sees himself as like polarly opposite to a lot of this stuff like how is he taking this and I'm like looking over and he's loving it and he's like energized by it. But hmm. it was just like saying, hey, we're going to go and we're going to read this story and it's going to be about literature and it's not going to be about politics. Then when things did like start to take on a political tenor, just that shift in context had like made him come to it with a more open mind. And he was able to actually, I think, find a more common ground than if we had been like, hey, we're going to go see like Juno Diaz do a speech on like this political topic, you know? Um, <laughs> so I think that's something that I saw when you were talking about, like, we aren't to the trees yet, but we're going to focus on the trees. It's kind of like, if you shift that context, sometimes you find we're not as polarized as we think, which I know sounds like so hokey because it it, it is super important to, you know, vote <laughs> your ideals. <laughs> but I think sometimes you realize like your ideals are not as far off as you think they are. And then it's like, maybe there's room with that shift in context, shift in perspective to make some progress or something. Yeah. I like that. It reminds me of a, so I had a conversation with a friend a couple of days ago, not you guys. I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, another friend <laughs> that I had talking about kind of this situation and we were kind of talking about how, what is it like to have a family who essentially raised you to become the bleeding heart liberal that you are today? 
yet then they're not like they're so polarly opposite. And to think that like she was saying to her parents, like you are the one who raised me like this. And, you know, how is it, how is it that these things that you've instilled with me as a child, that's what made me grow up the way that I am today. And so I think it's sometimes kind of interesting to even just think about that or have that kind of conversation. Obviously, if it's relevant, if they raised you to be a lagoon monster, then like maybe this isn't the conversation to have. But, um, but you know, it's like kind of like there is a reason why you've grown up the way that you have. And it possibly could be because of those things that your family's instilled in you. And that can be kind of a place where you can find that ground again. And it's not necessarily like common ground, but yeah, it's like just recognizing where the ideas where you meet um, and kind of taking out those like triggering, more surfacey moments to get to kind of what you're actually talking about. I think I have a suggestion that's in the same vein too. I really highly suggest the novel Dreaming in Cuban by Christina Garcia. It's about a family who... Some of them have left Cuba and are living in New York. The oldest daughter, I think, and her family are living in New York. And then the father's recently deceased. So the mother, uh, the widowed mother and her other children are still living in Cuba. And you kind of get perspectives from all the family members. And the one in New York is like super, super, I would never go back to Cuba. I don't know why anyone would want to live there. Like a lot of the things that I think a lot of people like me who were raised Cuban-American here heard a lot from their, especially like my dad's generation of Cubans and and his, his parents' generation. And then those who are still living on the island, like some of them are like fervently pro-revolution and some of them are like, I don't really know anymore. Um, and so it's just this one, oh, and the, the daughter who lives in New York, her daughter, who was two when they moved away from Cuba, and who doesn't remember anything has this like longing to go back. And so it's all in this one family, just all these different perspectives about something that's like so political, but so personal and so emotionally charged. And it's just a great book. It's beautifully written. I want to read you guys just a little snippet from it. One of the stories is that the matriarch, she's been in love with this other man for years and just like writing letters to him. I think he's living in Spain and she's been writing letters to him. Um, And one of the letters or snippet from one of the letters she writes to him is, I still love you, Gustavo, but it's a habitual love, a wound in the knee that predicts rain. Memory is a skilled seducer. I write to you because I must. So on top of just being like, I think, kind of poignant for Juanita, it's just super beautifully written and I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Well, I think like, so... This, I mean, I think we're probably going to be talking about scale and perspective much of the time here. I think this is probably the spot where my Adrienne Rich poem comes in. Um, yeah. But, but um, I won't read all of it because I think it does kind of, it. like I think there's some, there's some bangers inside the poem that I think I can just read. But I think a lot of this is about scale and stepping out of like just kind of, it's not necessarily like put yourself in someone else's shoes sort of perspective. But I mean, literally the scale of what is going on at the time. Because again, like with that first poem that I read, everything feels so heightened. And like every time you wash your hands, you're like reenacting everything horrible that's happening. And like you're you're either ignoring the horrible thing or you're part of the, you know, it kind of feels like you have so much control when you just don't. And you can do what you can. Like, again, it doesn't mean you step out so that you, you know, can go hang out in a field forever and, you know, lose all accountability and responsibility, but you have to step out in order to step back in because otherwise you're going to be exhausted and burnt out and have to go to therapy like five times a week. And that may be fine for your therapist, <laughs> I think, but so maybe not for you. Going along with that, Gail, I think it's really important because Juanita didn't ask us like, how do I confront my family? She asked us, how do I deal with this on the day-to-day? Because right. it is important to have those conversations, especially because like people's lives are being really negatively affected. So like it is important to have the fight, you know, it's important to do that, but you can't do that every day, especially not when you're living with people. And so that's like, I'm with you on that because I think a lot of my advice was kind of in that vein, like how do I do like the daily maintenance of this? Mm -hmm. And I think so much of that in terms of family and I'll just totally be I'll take my own experience as kind of the marker here. But so much of what you're arguing about is, yes, 
absolutely like real and there, you know, what you're talking about is like real politics and real heavyweight stuff that matters. But at the same time, you're still reenacting all of the patterns that you already do as a toxic family. And you're having the fight. It's like this big layered fight where you're fighting right now, but also you're four years old and also you're 12 years old and also you're 16 years old. And you're kind of reenacting all of those same familial patterns that have always kind of been bugging you and you're kind of pushing the same buttons and hitting the same triggers, regardless of what the subject matter is. And so one of my favorite kind of things to do, and this is connected to an arts advice, but one of my favorite things to do is to really get meta with the conversation. So yelling is a thing that's really fun. So fun. A big part of my family's culture. Um, (laughs) If it says, yeah, if it says anything, I'm, I'm probably one of the quietest people in my family, but like, one of the things to do when there's yelling, and I've done this, you know, a couple of times where it's like, they're at such this high level of energy. And if you kind of are able to kind of step out and look at the pattern for what it is, you can kind of call it out and not enter it, but kind of say, I find it really weird that you're yelling at me right now when actually we're doing this and what you really may mean is this or you know, I didn't start this argument for us to talk about this. I don't understand why you're yelling. Or I can see that you're, you know, trying to distract me by t- or trying to distract the conversation by going over here. But, you know, and, and you know, I'm, ma- I'm kind of making it sound a little bitchier than it, it is. But like, I think kind of stepping out because what that does, it, it doesn't necessarily continue. The, like it, it stops the argument is I think the best thing that it does. And it de-escalates and it kind of makes them step back and realize that, oh, I've been the one yelling a lot. Because I find that a lot of times the arguments start uh, someone saying like, I'll just, you know, I'll talk about shrimp here. They'll say like, you know what? I really hate shrimp. (laughs) And let's say that you have a very personal relationship with shrimp and you really love shrimp. So they're at that point, you can't like you cannot make yourself not at least say like, actually, I think shrimp's kind of great. But when you really think about it, the problem is when that person made the big opinion in the first place, you know, or like when there's but then the problem kind of turns to that second person who says, like, actually, shrimp's pretty awesome. They're like, well, why are you being so argumentative? Or like, why are you so sensitive when it's like, you know, or we could just kind of step out of these kinds of argument patterns that we tend to always do. And I think calling that out and not in like a mean way, but just kind of a quiet de-escalating way. It's really worked in, I won't even say family, just in general, just like kind of letting that argument stop or at least letting the like yelling stop. Yeah. I think a like a very low stakes version of that. Lower than shrimp? Low. Well, yeah. I mean <laughs> – don't make me get into shrimp right now. A very low stakes, argue, like like a real world version of that is like when someone, I feel like this used to happen to me a lot in life, maybe because I was a kid and people just take advantage of you. And I haven't really noticed it recently. But when people think they were in front of you in line and you know you were in front of them and you're like, it's fine, just go ahead. Which is not to say like let people, but I often like, like when people are like really intense about like I was first, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, it obviously matters more to you. Just go, just go. Mm-hmm. I'm. I will not engage in an argument about something this silly. Like we're not going to get like tensions are not going to rise over something silly. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't fit at all what yeah. you were saying, but it, it made me think of it. No, but it's kind of like, yeah. I mean, it's like recognize, like, okay, you're the one with the problem. You're the one with like the. You're the one who wants to get first. I will let you go first. So it's like both letting them go first and letting yeah, them yeah, yeah. know that they want to go de-escalate, first. Yeah, de-escalate, <laughs> but also in a way that's like because you are acting irrationally. I will be the one to step aside here. Mm-hmm. Just so you, just so we have the record straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what kind of reminds me of the Adrienne Rich poem. I see. I promise. There's like an art recommendation in here, but it's a poem that like I just personally love, and my dog is somewhat named after it. And it's called Hubble Photographs After Sappho, and it's by Adrienne Rich. And it basically is kind of thinking about those. I think it was written after some of the first Hubble photographs came back. And so it's thinking a lot about, I mean, it's very uh, Carl Sagan blue dot-ish, right? And But for me, it really kind of hit that level of perspective and like the fact, you know, kind of where where we are and what, you know, what kind of levels of scale are we really looking at and how we can kind of dip in and dip back out. The first part, kind of, so it's called After Sappho just because it starts with a quote from Sappho. Um, and it starts, it should be the most desired sight of all, 
the person with whom you hope to live and die walking into a room, turning to look at you, sight for sight, should be, yet I say there's something more desirable, the ecstasis of galaxies so out from us there's no vocabulary, but mathematics and optics, equations letting sight pierce through time. Uh, and then it goes, beyond good and evil as ever stained into dream, beyond remorse, disillusion, fear of death or life, rage for order, rage for destruction, beyond this love which stirs the air every time she walks into the room. These impersonae, however we call them, won't invade us as on movie screens. They are so old, so new. We are not to them. We look at them or don't from within the milky gauze of our tilted gazing, but they don't look back and we cannot hurt them. And thinking about space a lot really helps me. But I, I think it's a little bit more of what kind of Anne was saying about that perspective and how Adrienne really, for me, it's just she goes so, so, so small and continually puts it into perspective and changes scales like that. Um, and that's how, I don't know, it's the only way that I can really uh, sanely move through the world. Yeah, she's just the best. All, I don't know, all this talk about like how our family, it's like no matter what you're arguing about, like you both said, like everything gets escalated to the same level and then becomes like a representation of everything that you've ever argued about and like your dynamics as a family since birth. Like for yep. me, I always feel attacked because I'm the youngest and I have this like, you know, this youngest child complex that like everyone thinks that I'm still young and stupid and naive, even if I'm just putting that on myself. So it's always good to like, yeah, take a step back. It also reminded me of this book that my mom gave me as a very anxious preteen called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. <laughs> and she was basically like, I mean, in my mom's like very sweet, but also like you need to calm down kind of way. It's just a book that was just, it was basically like choose your battles. And this goes to like everything that that, yeah, like you guys were talking about from, you know, someone who cuts you in the grocery store to like these big ideological battles with your family, with basically everyone in the outer world. It's just like, you know, sometimes it's just not worth battling everything because then like how do you live your life? How do you like be a person who's not just like angry and mm-hmm. hates everything? Right after Trump's inauguration, there was this woman's group in in Lauderdale that was meeting monthly that kind of dissolved. But someone gave the advice that you can't hold on to anger because you burn out on anger, but you can never burn out on love. And so even though you feel angry, that if we are actually going to make any sort of change, if we're actually going to do anything, it's got to be instead of focusing on what makes you angry, you need to focus on who it is or like what causes it is that needs your love and like where you can direct that. And that like that's an energizing rather than depleting force, which has been something, I mean, like I think that's a hard thing, but it's something that if I am able to, when I'm feeling really down about political things, if I can kind of like refocus myself there and be like, well, what am I doing and what can I do? But that 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 focus on not turning away from the idea because it's hard and because it makes you angry turning like staying fully focused and toward it but with a different energy behind it um and a different like driving force i that reminds me so i had a a student write a paper for me last semester they did um ted talk responses and one of the ted talks i wish i can remember it now but it was basically about animal conservation and with this same kind of theory which is like the animals more animals get saved when you give them, like when you give people something to love and like something to kind of get behind and something to like find hope with instead of fear, instead of like, we need to do this or else this is going to go away or else this is really like they like in the end respond more to uh, love and hope than the fear that something is going to go away, which is makes me feel better about the world. But I think kind of is in that same way. Like you are, you're like, you can do what you can right now on fear and anger, but it's just going to go out really quickly. But if you kind of have that sustaining uh, hope and love, I think that, that sounds really corny, but, but like, you know, when you're, when everyone gets to rally around a certain animal, it's much better 
I guess, in this experiment than if you kind of say, this animal is going to be extinct if you don't do something. And that isn't as sustainable. Totally. Yeah. And also, the more you become angry and enraged, I think the more people become isolated from each other. And so that idea of like, Mm-hmm. What can we do together? Or like, how can we reframe this in an active way that makes things better? Is Yeah, I think I will jump in if that's okay with a, um, a suggestion now that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, and that's that one of the things I suggested is, Juanita, I think you should really, if you're not already, I think you should be listening to Two Dope Queens. They're not making new podcasts anymore because they have their HBO specials, but there's like a backlog of several seasons of podcasts There are eight HBO specials at this point, and I feel like a lot of people already know about this podcast, but it's hosted by Jessica Williams and Phoebe Robinson, and they – I mean, they host like a – they host a stand-up show, and they have a really great rapport between the two of them, and a lot of times they'll be talking about an issue, and they they highlight comics – who a lot of the times are not just like straight white dudes like most stand-up comics. And so they highlight a lot of people. They they feature a lot of people who talk about things like racism and sexism in a way that's like super real and unapologetic. But that infusion of humor is like, I think, another way of kind of like shifting and reframing the way you're talking about these really tough subjects. And like it's a really productive way while also like humor is a great release and a great self-care and also kind of like so it keeps you focused on the issues that matter but instead of it being like drudgery because even like the late night shows that are showing clips of what's on the news all the time like they're so like they like drag you down or me at least I find that I I don't enjoy watching like Seth Meyers do his like closer look and stuff like that because I'm 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 already reading so much news. I don't need to see more news. I don't see, need to see more clips of that man speaking, you know, or or his like troop yeah. of goons. But when I see a stand-up comic doing like brilliant work about the topic that doesn't include clips of these people but like is focused on I think it's a really productive way to focus on the issues that are meaningful right now and always. And also I think Comedy is a unifier. Yeah, and like picking up, you know, those same things that you know that you love about your family. I mean, like when you find out that like so-and-so likes, I don't know, like Parks and Rec or they like this other show or whatever. And you're kind of like, okay, so you're not a completely different human being. You're you're seeing the same show I am, you know, and like yeah. you're liking the same show I am. And, it, you know, this comedy, it – points at something that like, again, like in those same kinds of conversations where it's like, it's not the expressly political issue that you end up fighting about, but it does end up kind of making connections in those other ways. Um, when we're talking about hope and and love, which I just, I need to stop putting those two together because it makes me automatically feel like I'm being like a minister. But <laughs> I think, so it reminds me of Hope in the Dark, uh, Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark, which after the election, it actually came out. I think Amazon did this like free download or somebody did a free download for a while. Um, and so I had I continue to have it on my Kindle just because I tend to need to come back to it. But it's all about kind of hope in this very similar vein. It's like hope as an act of defiance and not kind of this like, oh, everything's going to be so great. It's not like blind, blonde <laughs> optimism is what I was going to say. It's not blind <laughs> optimism or blonde optimism. You know, and, and it's not not taking action, right? But it's it's kind of using that wish and hope that like things that you can kind of work towards things and that they can get better and to keep working through that uncertainty and that complexity and that, again, like not taking action is not a possibility. And that's kind of what hope does. It's not not doing anything because everything's going to be fine, but it's also not doing anything because everything is hopeless and there's no need to do anything. And so it's kind of both giving yourself a break and letting yourself kind of build up towards that more kind of hope that things are going to be, that you can at least work toward the things that can be okay. And like those, those little things that work and those little celebrations that then continue to make you not give up instead of just being angry about everything. Um, it's kind of finding those little, little steps. I'm not sure if it's free anymore, but I do regardless, highly recommend hope in the dark. And I think a, there's like a lot of stuff at the end kind of about 
you know, the ways that communities come together and the ways that we can kind of build on some really horrible things that have happened, but like in a, in a more, I wouldn't say positive way, but in a kind of more productive and proactive kind of way. Yeah, I just really love it. It came out a while ago, like I think it was like 2003, but then there was another edition that came out a couple years ago too. I really recommend that, Juanita. So I have, I want to tell you guys something, which is that my my niece, Simone, who is the cutest baby in the world and like just so fat, when she was like, I guess, three or four months old, it was Halloween time and she was a witch um, and she was so cute. And when I got like my sister-in-law texted me the photo of her and I got in my head the phrase chunky little witch, which I sing to myself all the time to the tomb of funky little shack from Love Shack. And like a lot of times when I have her and I'm playing with her, I'm like, chunky little witch, <laughs> chunky little witch. And it makes her <laughs> laugh so much and I love it. So, you know, add that to your life. Everybody. <laughs> One to <eat> everyone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So I have a suggestion. It actually kind of goes with what you were saying, Gail. It also follows a little bit uh, from my other suggestion of listening to Two Dope Queens, which is, Juanita, I think you should listen also to the podcast So Many White Guys, which is Phoebe Robinson's other podcast. It's an interview podcast. And she, every season, I think is like 10 episodes long. And she interviews people, a, a lot of times people in the arts, but not exclusively that, who are not white guys. So a lot of queer, people of color, women. And then every season, she ends the season by interviewing a token white guy, which I love. (laughs) But I think what her show does is just highlights these less prominent voices. And like, it's made me aware of a lot of artists and writers and like TV writers and things like that. It's, It's brought me to shows that I didn't watch before. And I think that's an important thing to do because so much of what the political climate now, like so much of it is so racially charged. And, you know, it's like fighting against this like old white dude way of doing things and really like privileging and keeping prominence around these old white dudes. And the people who are most threatened by this ideology are the most marginalized people. And so I think keeping focus on those marginalized people you know, whether they're groups we identify with or not personally, and kind of like elevating those voices in every sphere is a really important thing to be doing. And so I really recommend so many white guys. And it's again, it's really she she's not, you know, she's not a trained journalist. Her interview style is so relaxed and really fun. And sometimes like, I mean, it's like, I, I hate to say it in a way that seems pejorative, but like, it doesn't feel professional which is not to say it's like amateurish or bad, but it feels just so conversational. She's just really delightful. I'm actually going to read you as part of my plea for you to listen. I'm going to read you just a um, an Instagram caption that she wrote. So she took a picture of the, you know, that like iconic photo of Nancy Pelosi clapping directly towards the president at the State of the Union And her caption is, LOL, when your significant other does chores around the house one time and is expecting a parade, some freshly written poetry in their honor, and for you to shave above the knee before sex, hashtag bitch do chores consecutive days and then we can talk. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah, she's great. I mean, so yeah, follow her on Instagram as well. But her show, I think, is really, it brings a lot of necessary voices that, you know, you may or may not be familiar with. And I love that. On that similar thread, I do have one more uh, book recommendation. On the theme of like listening to marginalized voices, especially during this time when like there's a bigoted white man in charge, is to read Terrence Hayes' American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. Yes. Oh, my God. Which – that's that was it's good. It, that I, was my oh my god. Yes. So I am currently <laughs> reading it. I've read a ton of the sonnets online, but I'm reading the full collection now for the first time. And I mean, so American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin 
all sonnets written during the first 200 days of the Trump presidency. And they explore race, you know, black men and their bodies criminalize, it confronts white supremacy, all these things that have, you know, that are really just being pushed to the forefront, rightly so. So it's, I mean, obviously these poems are political, but they're also personal. They're lamentations, but they're also love poems. They're kind of regrets, but also desires for what this nation could be. And so I just love the complexity that he brings to these poems that, you know, these poems are praising resistance. They're exploring what America is and what what it means and what it what it could mean. But it's also just confronting all of this ugliness. But there's also still a place for hope. Which kind of returns to this conversation that I think that I think we're having. There's still some like sliver of hope in in here that we can all kind of rally together, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think so. Yeah, that's great. All the poems in the book are called American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. Um, this one starts, inside me is a black-eyed animal bracing in a small stall as if a bird could grow without breaking its shell. And then later on in the poem – the speaker says, I mean to leave a record of my raptures, which is just <laughs> such a beautiful line and kind of. Yeah, that's I gorgeous. Know. I love it. It's just a beautiful book and it's like rightly angry. Yeah. In that same vein, I have kind of going from the advice of uh, Phoebe Robinson and like listening to you talk about that Terrence Hayes book. I had picked poems by two poets of color that I really wanted to share with you guys. Um, I think both of them are amazing and their books are amazing. And so should I do like a little little mini reading here, back-to-back poets? A little mini reading. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, the first poem is by Loqua Mayan, um, and it's from her book, The Bees Make Money and the Lion. Uh, and she's just such a brilliant like just such a brilliant poet. And I love so much about her because she is, I think sometimes there are poets who are too kind of like heady and intellectual and they lose that touchdown point of like realness. <laughs> um, and she managed just to be so brilliant and her work is so intellectual while also not then getting divorced from like what's really meaningful. And I could have picked so many poems in her book, but she has a, a series called The Alien Crown, and I'm picking one of those poems to read to you guys. The Alien Crown. The reverse of the universe is round, a ground with a ceiling. Girls who petition at the exit. Girls who immigrate. Girls who must sip a sip of blood so white roots may put down a pink hush. Honey in a foreign girl's roar is the key to auto fable. And here be lions rented by liars in the suburb of a white man's room, the orbit I irradiated. The end of eternity is an adequate poem with an owner quickly pulling it shut. He rapes a language for a word ending in J, joking constraint, and for content pillages the archetype of a village, picks his destination, a trick of a spinning prick. Let's not look kindly on it, but in the end, be kind of honest. Most fantasy is a pale loop on demand. In this book, the bees make money in the lion's fontanelle, licked away by the hero in tacky sheets of zero. Next chapter in, we girls spit it all out. The end is gold and harm, mercurial, and the sea, a shine with milk and honey, and the sky, amen. Oh my God. A trick of a spinning prick? Dude, that's all I want to call like... I want to I want to call all my ex-boyfriends and call something they did that. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. God damn it. And then the other person that I want to share with you guys is I want to read a poem from Roger Reeves um, from his book, King Me. I'm going to read this one called Southern Charm. Now begins the tradition of the fire hose. Please pay no attention to the flag disappearing into the mouth of a soldier's salute. The chickens goose-stepping in the backyard and prepared to peck each other to death. Charming little children in the rotunda of a state house, holding sighs below signs, demanding the right to vote Yosemite Sam and James Brown into office. Bless your heart. Bless your little heart. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Guilford County, 1962. 
In Baton Rouge, 1963, a boy prepares to be both ghost and savage hum. I have no way to explain this fondness for the rub of red clay against my tongue, fondness for black men wearing a street raw below a pair of spiked heels, curtsy, and five o'clock shadow. In Atlanta, I am a green light along a corridor of housebroken homes. I refuse to explain the pageantry of healing a cut with a spiderweb and a few flakes of ash from a late winter fire. Sometimes my lover smears honey on the scars pocking my elbows, cheeks, and knees. In a tabernacle meant for salvation, a little Hennessy and baby powder was all that could be found, and that already spilled onto the neck, bones, and shoulders of those offering themselves to the nearest tongue willing to slide on the half-moon of a hip clothed in white. Wide white sails, wide white whales lurching down MLK on white walls just after Easter, and the dogwoods sin in the name of nectar. Help me, Holy Ghost, what's in your speaker box, the love below, the gospel of young money millionaires, maybe Faulkner or Chaucer, a parliament of fowls squabbling over the late afternoon sun that fills each blackbird's fat throat. I refuse to explain the head and source of the South's distemper. O Hamlet, North Carolina, and the fallow winds loosening the topsoil of my lover's body, O son of the mute sharecropper, O bent guitar and shattered body at the foot of a mockingbird, what nation, what native land does nature salute? Holy crap. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I love Roger Reeves' work. And something else I really love about him that I want to share with you guys that also gives us like kind of another little mini recommendation is that Roger came to Miami last year for the Oh Miami Festival and participated in this really amazing event. It's one of the best Oh Miami events I've ever gone to where he went into, I can't remember which school, and he worked with school children to write these songs. These like they, they wrote poems that became lyrics for songs that they performed, Roger and the kids and the band Antibalas performed at like the kind of the like capstone event of the festival last year. And Antibalas is would be my other like little suggestion. They're this amazing Afro-Caribbean brass band. They actually, the... The brass line from Antibalas performs on Uptown Funk. They're like just these amazing musicians uh, and they're super cool. Their music's amazing and definitely gives you kind of a different flavor. But watching Roger and the way he interacted with these kids, these like young black and Latina kids, I don't know. I just think like his poetry is amazing. That's a given. But also like he's kind of walking the walk, it seems, (laughs) um, in a great way. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Which I, I'm just really – I'm having a really fun time with the visual of him with a bunch of children. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it sounds incredible. Um, <laughs> I want to say, and maybe we need to cut this, but just the visual of him is pretty amazing, period. <laughs> yeah. Let's just – let's be honest. <laughs> um, so I guess on a, a more musical note, if we're already – if we're, like, leading towards music – I have like one and a half recommend, not even a half. They're both recommendations. Um, but one I think is is just really spot on here. And one I think that Juanita, you should definitely take advantage of. And it's the Solange song called Borderline, an ode to self-care. The whole thing is kind of written in this way that's like written kind of to the lover beloved person. And it's kind of like, Things aren't going so great. I'm really tired. Um, I think that, yeah, the line is like, um, you know, I have the world to think about, but they don't want to kind of break up. They don't want to kind of do anything harsh, but they do. So like they're trying to kind of like maintain the sustainability of the relationship. But in order to do that, she's got to go ahead, take some time and like take a break. Um, And I think the lines are like, you know, I have the world to think about. I got to go ahead and take some time because the last thing I want to do is think that it's time to leave the borderline. And so it's all, it's that kind of like, if I want this to keep going, I got to like check out for a little bit. So it's like, let's, let's just like take a break tonight. Let's hang out tonight or let's, I guess, not hang out tonight so that tomorrow will be, you know, we can kind of keep working on this or we can keep going. That's what I'm taking from it anyway. Cause for me, that line that like, the last thing I want to do is think that it's time to leave the borderline. It's like there's this kind of war going on or there's this 
liminality that exists that like you want to just kind of hang out there for a while. You're not necessarily wanting to make these like huge um, decisions, but you, you know, you want things to keep going. So you're like, all right, you know what? I'm going to take a break. I'm going to step out. I'm going to watch some two dope queens and then I'm going to come back in so we can kind of keep working on this relationship. And I think just, just to launch in general, you should just <laughs> listen to. Um, and then that paired with that is an Erica Badu song called Didn't You Know, which is very much along the same lines. Um, and there's the video of her is um, of her just like walking through the desert in this really elaborate costume. And she's like, it's time to save the world. Where in the world's all the time? And there's so many things I still don't know. And I think both of those kind of, I don't know, they're both incredible songs that I kind of just reminded myself of a couple weeks ago. And they seem to me, Juanita, to be something that I think you might really, really be into right now. I love those. Thanks. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think it's important to like give yourself a break sometimes. Yeah. Also things like arguing in the shower, you know, right? Oh, God. That's like – Right. Well, I feel like so much of this is like the brain trying to like take control over the situation and it just can't, but it keeps trying. And so you're just obsessing and obsessing and obsessing. Yes. And so then to me, I mean, even just everything in the shower, unclog the shower drain. (laughs) That makes you feel really good. Argue in the shower. Like while you're doing that, argue with someone, kind of play out those things. Because everything now feels like it drags on forever and is unmanageable, I think doing little manageable tasks is actually a great piece of advice too. Like fold and put away all your laundry in one sitting and then you're a person who has accomplished something and that makes you a stronger person (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) I mean, you know, um, choreograph a Solange song and then boom, you've done it. For example. (laughs) For example, <laughs> pay off your library fines. Oh yeah, I feel like we're we're spiraling here, oh, but boy. but maybe this is more my to do list out loud than anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know mine's like clean the fucking bathroom, just do it. You'll feel better about everything else in your life. <laughs> this makes me think of in a in Thirty Rock, the episode where like. Liz sees Jack giving himself like a pep talk in the mirror and his is like, you got this, you handsome son of a bitch or whatever. And then she's like, oh, you're psyching yourself up? I do that sometimes too. And it cuts to her and she's like, stop sweating, you stupid bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I definitely say that to myself a lot. Like not in like that funny, you know, like in the Liz way, not like I literally say that to myself. I do. I say other things to myself, but that I love. That's like one of my favorite things because it's so, it's so true. (laughs) You stupid bitch. Anyone have some like lighter suggestions? I do actually a really quick one. And I know I have, I think I provided the previous lighter suggestions. Um, I think buying and do- buying or donating something in someone's name is just so fun and great to do. Depending on like what, like I know like some people like submit to submit. They don't submit. They're not poets. What's the word? Donate. <laughs> Donate to Planned Parenthood in like their mom's name or something like that. And like, you know, it's like an arm, you know, it's anonymous or whatever. Um, or even in Mike Pence's name, I think that was a funny one. But I think like one thing, I mean, and this is something that like I just like, for example, I last year for Father's Day, like I don't, I have such a hard time getting my dad something for Father's Day because like he doesn't really want anything. And like, you know, I don't want to get him something that like is just kind of a follow through. Like, hey, I know you hate this, but like. I hate it too. Here's a something that you're going to throw away. But like for me, I kind of found something that like, I guess something that we kind of both agreed on or that he could at least feel like his father's day was worth something. And so I bought him, you know, I did, what is it? The, um, the company where you buy a goat. Heifer International. Yeah. And I bought, I bought a family, a goat in his name and then like sent him the thing and was like, well, I know that like you feel like you don't really want anything for Father's Day, so I f- but I figure, you know, I this would help you kind of feel like you're doing something or that like your Father's Day is not kind of in vain or whatever. So, here's that. And I think I don't know, it I don't really know 100% how you felt about it, but I also know that like at the very least we've helped out a family. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. 
And like, I, yeah, I mean, it was like, I felt good about buying him something that like he wasn't going to hate or that he wasn't just going to be like, well, thanks for the thoughtless gesture, you know, but he also didn't want anything. So it was something that kind of, we both were like, cool. At the very least, we've helped out somebody. I like that a lot. Anyone else? No, mine are all dumb. I don't want to say them. But they're lowbrow though? Yeah. No, but like this conversation has gone in such a way that like I (laughs) – I don't – yeah. I think that it's been very serious, which I think is like matching the tone of the question and so that's good. But if you've got some lighter stuff, I really think it would be good to end like that. Yeah. Well – I don't know. Do you want to do you want to type it on um no. on the chat? <laughs> do you want to whisper it in our ears? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but like Anne, everything so far has been like amazing and then you'll end it with being like we'll just delete it. So, I trust you very much. <laughs> My suggestion Whenever I'm feeling just really like anxious or upset, it's not whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat, Anne. No. Juanita needs you. <laughs> I just really want Juanita to watch Footloose, is the thing. Yes! <laughs> That's perfect. If for nothing else, then watching Kevin Bacon dance out his frustration in an abandoned warehouse. I just think like on very simple terms, when you're frustrated with yourself, with anybody, my always go-to is to watch Footloose. And also and- I think like the premise of the movie is basically like John Lithgow and his daughter like fighting it out and fighting out their ideals and sort of like the t- this town's like religious and hysterical response to like a teenager dying in a car crash where like loud rock music being played like the town's response is to like ban all rock music and dancing which is ridiculous mm-hmm. but Kevin Bacon's character rallies everyone together and like uses basically the town's like religious response and foundation against them or like is basically rallying everybody together to say like hey don't use religion to like keep us down in this way when like ecclesiastes says that there's a time for dancing bam and like john lithgow can't argue with that and it just no. brings everybody together. And it's just like a very silly, feel-good movie. I love that, Anne. I love that suggestion so it's, much. It's uniting around love. That's and dancing, true. right? There's yeah. a time for dancing. There is. But yeah, but like it's 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 like instead of being afraid, the thing that's sustainable is that they love to dance. Yeah. It brings everyone together. Brings me together. Maybe yeah. in a similar vein. I feel like this is not a great suggestion because I feel like it's something that maybe Juanita's already doing because I feel like everyone's doing it. Like it doesn't feel as curated because it's just like very right now. But I feel like you should watch Queer Eye, Juanita, because again, it's like it's just like it'll make you feel really good. It'll make you really happy. It's got like the satisfying like before and after thing, which is like everybody likes. But also then, yeah, it does deal with kind of like I don't know, like uh, like marginalized voices being elevated, and like sometimes the people they're they're making over. Like my favorite ones are like where it's like, I don't know. In the most recent season, there's this young queer black woman who's like had to leave her home and like find her new family. Like there's a lot of really important stories being told, and a lot of really wonderful people being helped by these really hilarious and wonderful people. Yeah, I just watched the one with um, is his name Joey. The camp, the camp yes. guy. Oh, I love that one. Um, and he was, t- yeah, and he was talking about like, you know, when I was I, like, they're like, what happened? He was like, well, I was drinking pretty heavily. And then Anthony was like, look, I, I've had some problems with addiction. This is how I feel. And I think like those kinds of really one-on-one moments are my favorite, favorite parts of the entire yeah. episode. 
I also feel bad because very often Bobby doesn't get to have those because he's remodeling an entire freaking house because no. <laughs> Bobby is the heavy lifter. <laughs> I love how Bobby has really emerged in this season. Yeah. He just kind of came out of nowhere and I was like, you know, I really love Bobby. And I do too. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't before. He's just kind of like quiet, thoughtful personality. I don't know. Yeah, I think that I think yeah. Bobby is an unsung hero in all ways. <laughs> totally. Also, he has a really fantastic Instagram. Yes, he does. He and his husband, husband, yeah. are they married? Dewey. They're so yes. cute. <laughs> his name is Dewey. Yay. Um, for the listening audience, Anne's cat was named Dewey. <laughs> Rest in peace. RIP. I still every time I watch an episode, I think like, "Oh my god, I really need Queer Eye." Oh, yeah. Me too. Like, I need someone to teach me how to walk in high heels. Oh, I want – so I told my sister, I was like, we need to somehow – so I have a 22-year-old nephew who's, like, really wonderful and kind of a mess. And I'm like, we need to get him queer-eyed somehow and, like, somehow mm-hmm. – I mean, that would be easy. But we're like, we need to get him queer-eyed, but somehow we need to convince them that they need to do, like, a sister-sister makeover for both our houses. <laughs> Which oh yeah we live across the street from each other this seems feasible but we're we're working out the kinks on this one. <laughs> I say you spend like a year really messing yourself up, just like see all the worst stuff that you can do, and then like next year I'll nominate you, and then they'll be like, you know, what do you think? You know, why do you think you're like this? And you're like, well, it all started a year ago, when. I don't know. I thought about hamsters and it was so terrible. And then it's like, oh, and then if there's some music and you're like, okay, we've got our like root of the problem. It was a year ago. Let's get you back, you know? And then you get your makeover. All right. I, I In general, I like it. I think that the backstory needs some workshopping. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Do we have any more suggestions for Juanita? I heard the beautiful jingle bell tones of Gail's dog needing to go out. (laughs) Yes, that you'll hear him. And I have a poem that we could end with. Perfect. That sounds great. Like not my poem, but. (laughs) What if we all just started um, recommending our own work to everyone exclusively? (laughs) Look, while we were talking, I wrote a poem, and I think you guys would really like it. (laughs) All right. Oh, God. Share your poem with us, Gail. Okay. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it as good as I can, and hopefully the dog will not jingle the bells. Uh, Okay. So I recommend in general Ada Limon's everything, just everything she's ever written, but also her newest book is called The Carrying. And I don't think like, you know, I think a lot of reviews would kind of say like, oh, it's starting to get more expressly political. But then in interviews, she's she kind of says, like, I don't really think it is. I think I'm, I think people are just paying more attention, which I think is interesting and probably correct. But she so she came to Grand Rapids a few months ago. And my favorite my favorite story about her is that. So if you want to get your book signed, you have to put a post-it note on the front of your book with your name. And then you can hand it to her and she'll sign it. And apparently, I actually still have the post-it note in my book, but it looks like my name apparently says Gate and not Gail. <laughs> but she was like, your name is Gate? And I was like, no, it's Gail, G-A-L-E. So she, on the like signature, on the like autograph page, it says like Gate, to Gate with love for hope. And then it says for Gail. But at the top, it says Gate, which is really funny. But anyway, she at this reading, she read uh, this poem called A New National Anthem, which I think is just beautiful and it moves in this really lovely way. And then it ends, which I think with a lot of what we've kind of been talking about this whole time. And I think reading as we've been doing, like talking about artists and uh, performers of color and talking about kind of the real issues behind it, I think this kind of puts everything kind of, for me, into perspective or out of perspective it blows things into proportion, as you might say. So I'll go ahead and and just uh, read it. A new national anthem. The truth is, I've never cared for the national anthem. If you think about it, it's not a good song. Too high for most of us, with the rocket's red glare, and then there are the bombs. Always, always there is war and bombs. 
Once I sang it at homecoming and threw even the tenacious high school band off key, but the song didn't mean anything. But the song didn't mean anything, just a call to the field, something to get through before the pummeling of youth. And what of the stanzas we never sing, the third that mentions no refuge could save the hireling and the slave? Perhaps the truth is every song of this country has an unsung third stanza, something brutal snaking underneath us as we blindly sing the high notes with a beer sloshing in the stands, hoping our team wins. Don't get me wrong, I do like the flag, how it undulates in the wind like water, elemental, and best when it's humbled brought to its knees, clung to by someone who has lost everything when it's not a weapon, when it flickers, when it folds up so perfectly you can keep it until it's needed, until you can love it again, until the song in your mouth feels like sustenance, a song where the notes are sung by even the ageless woods, the short grass plains, the Red River Gorge, the fistful of land left unpoisoned, that song that's our birthright, that's sung in silence when it's too hard to go on, that sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's, God damn it. That sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's. That sounds like a match being lit in an endless cave. The song that says, my bones are your bones and your bones are my bones. And isn't that enough? So that's it. It's just incredible. I love that. Love that, Ada yeah. Lone. She, I mean, it's basically is the Star Spangled Banner. Like it, it goes in that same way where it's like, travels and travels and travels and then you're like end with my bones are your bones and you're like and the rocket you know like you're just like there I don't know I love it that also the your bones are my bones that do you remember that song um and it might have just been like a girl scout song uh it's like the more we get together together together, together. and it's like because yeah. your friends are my friends and my friends are your friends yeah that's what it makes me think of <laughs> I mean that song really uh, brings together this podcast now with friends. <laughs> that's true. Wow. I think uh, I think that's as good a place as any to end. Yeah, Juanita. Um, I again, I absolutely empathize, and I hope some of this has given you a through. What is it? God, sorry. A safe passage. A safe passage. <laughs> <laughs> To go through because it is really difficult. And so hopefully some of this gives you, I don't know, a couple of places to touch down when you need to. And I want to tell Juanita good luck um, because Juanita told us good luck finding things, which I thought was really sweet. (laughs) So Juanita, good luck with these recommendations. I hope they serve you well. And please take care of yourself. Yes. That's important too. Yes, self-care. Solange. (laughs) Now That We're Friends was recorded in front of a live studio audience made up entirely of our pets. Your hosts and three new friends are Caroline Cabrera, Ann Holmes, and Gail Thompson. Our producer is Lisanne Michelle Tanner Ramos. Our theme music is provided by Gail Thompson. Now That We're Friends is an O Miami production. If you want to ask us for advice to receive our recommendations, you can send a voice memo or written email to newfriend at omiami.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Now That We're Friends and on Twitter and Instagram at NTWF Podcast.